Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. I think we're going to just get down to probably verse 16 tonight because we're going to read some other passages that I think will be a welcome uh, and certainly an encouragement as we have looked at the, the people of Israel flounder and just go through such a mess and If I had to put a title on tonight's time together, I would say, like father, not like son. Like father, not like son. And the reason for that is because as we look at the life and the ministry and the, and the reign of Hezekiah, no doubt one of the best kings that the southern kingdom had ever had there were probably only two kings that were really in the same sentence, and that would be either Josiah or David, but uh, Hezekiah had a special place that was near and dear to the heart of God because he was simply uh, a man who loved the Lord, and he loved to obey God. And don't you love to obey God? It's not always easy to obey God, is it? In fact, obeying God sometimes will cause a uh, a strife between family members, a strife between a husband and a wife. Obeying God can sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, drive a wedge between people and families and even people in fellowships. Because if we're not all surrendered, we're going to have, we're going to be governed by something else, and it could be just be ourself. And um, even as Christians, we can be more concerned about our how we feel and what we want rather than the will of God and what God wants. And that requires obedience, it requires sacrifice, doesn't it? And that's something that we don't like to talk about today in America because um, we don't like to sacrifice anything. But in order to be a true Christian, there has to be sacrifice because a sacrifice has already been giving, given for you. Specifically, Jesus Christ. He bore the penalty of mine and your sin. Once and for all, we'll never see hell because of his sacrifice on the cross. And all we have to do is put our faith in him. But now, even, even now as believers, Paul would exhort us and say, now crucify those members that are in your body, those, those things in life, you know, uh, lust and, and uh, malice and anger and, and hatred and uh, envy and all of these ugly things. There's a whole list of them. And he gives them to us. And so we need to be surrendered. So that means that we need to sacrifice our life. Like Paul would say, make your lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Notice, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable for us to do this. If Almighty God, through Jesus Christ, has paid the price for me and has died for me and has given me something that I could never earn, he ought to deserve my whole attention, my, all of my affection, all of my heart. And for me to withhold something from him and, and not give him everything. And I'm not talking about money. There, there are some churches who say, well, you've got to give all, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about everything, your life. And he, he doesn't require you to give everything in the sense of, you know, selling it or whatever. Just live your lives and enjoy it. But when, know that everything that he has is, you, is it belongs to him. He gave it to us. And we're to be stewards of those things. But Hezekiah was one of those young men, and not like father, or like father, not like son. Because normally in many kingdoms and many uh, kings 
in history who have been really horrible kings, ungodly men, oftentimes their sons were just as ungodly because they didn't have a good role model before them. A father who is a despot, who is uh, disobedient to God and living a sinful life, um, his son or sons or daughters or kids, they don't have someone to look up to. And Hezekiah was one of those young men. And a miracle of miracles because of all the, you know, of all the things that this young man saw as he grew up under his despot father who was Ahaz, one of Israel's worst kings, sacrificing to idols and giving his sons to the fire and, and, and worship of Molech and, and just continuing to sin against God, grieving God, provoking God to anger. And then for Hezekiah, at, for 25 years, he, was, he grew up with his father. And that's the only role model or the, the most important role model in his life. And what's interesting is there came a point, probably around 11 years old, I think it was, where he became co-regent with his father. Or co, I'm sorry, vice, vice regent. Uh, a step uh, that's just a little bit lower than a king, but he was a vice regent to his father. And to make, and, and for 14 years he did that until he ruled himself after his father died. And then he reigned for another uh, 29 years. But he didn't have a great role model. And can you imagine the strife between God was already doing something in Hezekiah's life as he's seeing his dad make horrible decisions? worship and, and do all these horrible things and what was going on. And I want you to think about that as we go through this tonight, is what is going through the heart? What, what's the, the crisis of obedience that is going through this young man's heart as he sees his dad, now being vice regent of the kingdom of, of Judah and seeing his dad do these things? What was going through his heart how was God changing his heart? How was God proving to Hezekiah that what God had said in the Old Testament, in the law, was very good? And he knows that his father wasn't doing it. And I wonder, where, how, how, what was that like for him? Think of it. For 14 years, when he was vice regent, as a young man, think of the the disagreements they might have had. Or maybe it was one day, maybe it was late in his vice regent uh, position, maybe he was getting to the end of that, maybe he was like his father, but all of a sudden he realizes God's word is true. And he changes completely radically. And see, that's what Christianity does for us today. A real Christian is a radical Christian. A radical Christian was a normal Christian in the first century church. We think if we say praise the Lord that we're doing radical things, but you know what? The, the first century church, they were on fire. And I pray that that would come back into us too, that God would send revival into the church in America today. And it's happening in some areas, and I pray that he, he touches our lives. And individually, I'm not talking about some, you know, he can do whatever he wants, he's God. But let him do it. But Hezekiah, very different from his horrible example of a father, Ahaz. How does that happen? Now, you remember last week we looked at the fall of Israel. And I say Israel because we're talking about the northern ten tribes. 
Remember, it was um, Shalmaneser who came against and laid siege against uh, Samaria, which was the capital of the northern ten tribes, and laid siege to Samaria for three years until... um, And then at the end of those three years, either he or his son, Sargon II, finally just uh, arrested, took the people and and, and brought them captive physically to Assyria and other parts in in Syria. And we looked at that last week and how that was the end for the northern ten tribes. It was the end of Israel, end of the kingdom. They'd never learned from their idolatry. They continued. And now Judah, as we're going to see Tonight and next week and the next two weeks, we're going to see they didn't learn anything from their northern sister. They should have been watching and paying attention, but instead they became infused with the same idolatry that the northern ten tribes did. And God is no respecter of persons, is he? If he's going to judge one people group, he's going to judge another. He has the right to do that. He has the right to bring that judgment or chastening, however you want to see it. It's consequences for sin. He has the right to do that to an individual. He has the right to do that to a nation. So let's look at chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Let's just read down through the 16th verse, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Again, just... um, Bear in mind that now that the northern ten tribes have been taken captive, the next one on the chopping block is Jerusalem or Judah. And the enemy has got his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. Satan has always had a desire to destroy what God has what God wants to accomplish. He's always wanted to destroy the, the things of God. He wants to destroy his word. He wants to try and keep it from coming to pass. But do you realize uh, you can't outfool God. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He is all-powerful. It's like Satan trying to play chess with God. Try as he might, in his delirium, in his pride, Satan thinks that somehow he can thwart the plan of God. And he's made a pretty good run of it for a few thousand years now, hasn't he? He's made a pretty good run of it, but God is always one step ahead of him. And it's no big deal for God. It's no big deal for him. He's not like sweating bullets. He's going, you know, it's like setting up the chessboard with Satan. And before you even move a piece, God says, checkmate. <laughs> and the devil, well, I haven't even moved a pawn yet. We'll move a pawn and you'll find out. I'm going to checkmate. It's already done. So you might as well just give up. I'm not going to give up. All right, your funeral. You can't fool God. He knows all things. And he knows the heart of this young man. Let's look at it. Notice, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea. Now, Hosea was the the last king of the the northern ten tribes. He was the son of Elah, the king of Israel. So it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abai, or Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. 
He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, broke down in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him, notice this commendation by God in verse 5. Put a star by this. This is incredible. He trusted, meaning Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Wow. For he had held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And so he subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And then the king of Assyria carried away captive to Assyria um, and put them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And here's the reason. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, took them, and then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria." A pretty uh, sad thing, and, and yet to see this young man um, in the very beginning, and, and actually all throughout his life, he wasn't a perfect man. Well, the other scriptures tell us that he went through a period where he was lifted up in pride, and God dealt with him. But you know what? God didn't seem to really, it didn't seem to tarnish this man's reputation too much at all, because God's commendation of him, there's no one like him who was before him or after him. And that's quite a commendation, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you like to be a king of Judah and have God make that commendation to you? See, it's, it's not about starting the race. See, we all start the race when we come to Christ, but we have to finish it, right? Paul says, I, I look forward and I, I press forward to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus, that I might win the prize, that I might win Christ, that I might win salvation, that I might be and not that he has to work at it, don't get me wrong, but he, he, he will receive the Lord at the end. And so it's important for us to finish well, not just to start well, but to finish well. Now, I'd like for you at the top of this chapter to write down a few verses. Um, because 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20, so 2 Kings 18 through 20 
We're going to be going over the next couple of weeks, and it speaks of the life of Hezekiah. In fact, there's more written about Hezekiah than probably any other king in Judah, or a king period, except for Solomon. And for good reason. He was an exemplary man. And now, at the darkest hour of Judah, what does God do? He raises up a star. He raises up a man unlike Ahaz. He raised, somehow, how did that happen? Out of this horrible man comes forth this young man who was completely diametrically opposed to everything his father ever did. How did that happen? And he raises up a star at the right time in history, preserving Judah just a little bit more. And God would even raise up Josiah later on, not too far away. He'd raise him up too. And then after that, the nation would plummet into darkness and there'd be no hope for them. And they would be cast into captivity by the Babylonians. But write these scriptures down at the top of your page for this chapter. because So 2 Kings 18 through 20, because they'll speak about Hezekiah specifically. And then 2 Chronicles, chapters 29 through 32. 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. And then finally, Isaiah, chapter 36 through 39. I promise you, if you read those chapters specifically, you're going to get a big understanding of who Hezekiah was, his ministry, and everything that was coming against him, and how God prospered him at the right time in, uh, in Israel or in Judah's history. And so um, let's go back to verse 1 again. Notice what it says. It came to pass in the third year of Hosea. So Hosea, we've already learned this, he reigned for 20 years. He was the king of Israel from 732 to 722 B.C. And Hezekiah, who is mentioned here, he reigned from 715 to 686 B.C., a total of 29 years But it's also true that he was vice-regent with his father for 14 years, from 729 to 715, a total of 14 years. So you do the math, he was in power for quite a while. Now, a vice-regent, as he was, means that he reigned with his father, but in a subordinate uh, position. Um, You've heard of me use the word co-regent, and co-regent sounds just like what it is, two kings reigning together. A good example of this would be when a king is really old, and he's he's on his last year or two of life, he would have his, his, his firstborn son be the king. And so the king would still be the king, but he would be... Um, reigning alongside of his father. And so, but uh, Hezekiah was vice-regent with Ahaz for 14 years before he finally came into his own and then reigned for another 29 years. But notice what it says in verse 2. He was 25 years old when he started. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And it tells us who his mother's name was. And again, I find this interesting from a human point of view because Hezekiah was 25 when he began and being vice-regent with his father. And he saw and experienced all his father had done and all of his wickedness. And there's an old adage, like father, like son, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We've all heard that, right? But it doesn't apply here. In this case, the apple didn't fall from the tree. The tree was healthy. The apple didn't need to fall. It was very healthy, attached to the vine, and that was Hezekiah. And it seemed that somehow, sometime, 
that Hezekiah learned and he learned from his dad and he made up his mind of who he was going to be, what he was going to be like. And I, you know, I, I love that because young people need to do that today. You got to take a serious look. How am I going to be? Am I going to be like all my friends at school? Am I going to wear everything that they wear and, and go and do the same things that they do? Or am I going to be unique? I mean, we're all unique. Every one of us. There's no one that's the same. Are we going to be the same? We're going to allow God to do something unique in you. Because listen, God only does unique things with each of us. We should never compare each other with one another. We should never do that. Because what God may be doing in your life, he's going to do something a little bit different in this life. And he's going to be using this person in a different place. And there might be even more visible fruit than what you might see in your ministry. But it doesn't mean that God loves you less. It doesn't even mean that you're being not as fruitful. We, 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 we gauge by success because we're Americans. If it's working, we want it bigger and we want it faster and we want to manufacture it and export it. That, that's, our, that's capitalism. <laughs> But that's not so in the kingdom of God. The only thing we should be exporting is the gospel. But we're not doing it for gain. We're not doing it to be seen. Notice that he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. In verse 3, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did what was right in the sight of Jehovah, according to all that his father David had done. Remember as we've gone through that there's always this comparison with David, the great shepherd of Israel. The man after God's own heart. The sweet psalmist of Israel. There's always a comparison with whatever king is growing up in Judah. His ministry, his reign is always compared to David. Because God gave to David the promise that through him, through his line, through his lineage would come the Messiah. And David's line was a, a single dynasty from David all the way down to the very end. Unlike the nine dynasties in the northern ten kingdom. There was one in Judah and it went from father to son to grandson to great grandson to great 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 grandson and so on. The dynasty was never broken God made the promise to David, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. They're going to multiply like the sands of the sea, and your seed will inherit the throne forever, forever. And who is he speaking of? We know that he's speaking of Christ, because Christ came through the line of Judah, through the line of David. That's what the, the genealogy in Matthew was all there for us. For It's for that purpose, to show us that. So verse 4, he removed, notice, he did something that no one else prior to him, with the exception of a one person or so, but for the most part, nobody removed the high places. Even halfway decent kings, for some reason, they didn't go all the way. They only did a little bit. You know, don't go all the way in your relationship with Christ. Don't go just, I'm sorry, don't go um, part of the way is what I mean. Don't go part of the way. Go all in. Don't, don't test the waters and put your toe in and see if it's warm. Jump into the pool. <laughs> you want to jump into the pool. You want to just dive right in, regardless of, and just say, Lord, I'm all in. You got all of me. You've paid for all of me. So I am all yours. All yours. But he, Hezekiah, he removed the high places and he broke the sacred pillars, these instruments of, of, of idolatry that they had built up. He cut down the wooden image. And this is specifically... Uh, a wooden image uh, in, in, 
in worship of Asherah, she was a female Canaanite goddess of fertility. And so they, he cut the wooden image down, which no one had the guts to do. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it. Now, if you're burning incense to it, you're worshiping it, aren't you? When people worship something, they put it on the altar and they put their whatever it is and they burn incense. You're worshiping whatever that is. And so they took this bronze serpent that Moses had made, and we're going to go, I'm going to read something to you here in just a minute for some of you who don't know what I'm talking about. But notice they, uh, for until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and they called it Nehushtan, which literally means a bronze thing. It just means a bronze thing. And he did what nobody else would do. Let me read to you, uh, in, you might want to put off to the side of your verse, in verse 4 there, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9, because it talks about this brass serpent. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because of the connotation of it. It says, then they, speaking of Israel, they're, they're wandering through the wilderness before they came into the promised land. It says that they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God. Remember, they had just come out of Egypt. They're wondering, why are you taking us out into the desert? We're going to die. So they're wandering around out there. The people spoke against God and against Moses. And they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread, meaning the manna that God was providing every single day for a one and a half million people. Can you imagine having bread for one and a half million people? The ovens are always going. But see, I mean, obviously God is creating, he's, he's doing this naturally, supernaturally, through manna in the desert. He caused this stuff to just grow, and, and, then, and they would just go and pick it and eat it. And, and it happened every single day. And he provided for them, right? But they're complaining, there's no food, there's no leeks, there's no onions, and our soul loathes this worthless manna. So the Lord, notice... Because of their discontent, because of their speaking against God and against his servant, that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Wherefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And notice what they say, Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people and then the Lord said to Moses, Now make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a brass serpent, or a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. <laughs> it's kind of an unusual thing, isn't it? We know that the serpent for Israel is always a symbol of sin. Going back to the Garden of Eden, the serpent spoke to Eve. It was uh, Satan embodied the serpent and, was, uh, and, and deceived her, remember. So a serpent has always been a symbol of, of sin. And the pole is a symbol of, and bronze is, is a symbol of judgment. So this bronze serpent on a wooden pole, this pole is nothing more than a piece of wood. that the thing that symbolized sin was attached to. 
What does that sound like to you? <laughs> Most of you have been here for a while, you know exactly what it sounds like. Jesus in John chapter 3, notice what he says. John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses was lifted up, or excuse me, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There is the, the type in the Old Testament of the sin bearer, the serpent, being put on a pole on a cross, bearing the sins for you and me. And it was there for a reason. And notice it required faith for those people who were bitten. They had to look at the pole. If they said, well, you know what? This is a really dumb idea. I'm not going to look at it. Well, we'll be burying you. All you have to do is look. And does that require faith? It does. Because if you're looking at the pole and doing what God said, and all you have to do is just do it. If I get bit by a coral snake in Florida, and we had those in our wood pile in southwest Florida, if I got bit by a coral snake, you better believe that if somebody told me, especially with God's direction, look at that brass serpent on the pole and you'll live, I'm going to be hugging the brass serpent with the pole. I'm going to be kissing it to save my life. Right? It's a symbol. It, mean, it meant something to them, and they looked by faith, and they were saved. Same thing with Jesus when he was taken up and put on the cross, on the wooden cross. The Bible says that he became sin for us. He became all of our sin. In one stroke, God judged all of the sin of mankind once and for all on the cross. That's what that John chapter 3, verse 14 through 16 is all about. It was supposed to point to him, and it does. So, but Hezekiah sees the people. So for hundreds of years, they've had this brass serpent and they've been worshiping it. They've been burning incense to it. It became a fetish to them. And, and they were no different than the nations around them, the pagan nations, right? And so notice in verse five, so Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him after the kings of Judah who were, nor who were before him. And what an amazing, again, or, or commendation, not condemnation, Again, the only one who was like him was a young man by the name of Josiah. About 75 years later, God gave him also a stellar commendation. Notice what it says in 2 Kings 23, 25. Speaking of Josiah, God gives him the same kind of commendation. Speaking of Josiah, it says, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did anyone arise like him. So Josiah and Hezekiah are right at the top, along with David. Great men. And see, I don't know about you guys, and, and, and I, I believe you do, otherwise you wouldn't be here on a Thursday night. I want to finish well. I want to finish well. I don't want to let the world and, and the things of the world and, and silly things that we, we can all get caught up in, I don't want any of those things to snag me and keep me from being all that God wants me to be. Do you have that same heart? I don't want to, I don't want to ruin, uh, I don't want to ruin this, this life that God has given me. I don't want to bring shame to my family. I don't want to bring shame to the name of Jesus. But it's going to be a challenge. It's a challenge for you, it's a challenge for me, but we must keep going 
and keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And when we fail, we don't wallow in self-pity. No, we confess it and, and return from it, turn away from it. And if we confess it, what's the promise? That he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's really that simple. It's no different than looking at the bronze serpent. I either believe that promise that if I confess my sins and I believe on the one who died for me, all I got to do is confess it and he is faithful to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness from that sin. That's a pretty good deal, don't you think? So verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord, Hezekiah did. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded him, commanded Moses, excuse me. Now the Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. And see, that's always the desire of God, too. The, when we walk with him, and we are obedient to him, and again, it's never easy. It's always harder to do the right thing. The world does bad things because it's easy. It's the, it's the, it's the, the path of least resistance. Have you heard of that? Whenever you take the path of least resistance, you'd better be really careful that you know what you're doing, because chances are... The path of least resistance doesn't require faith. It doesn't require diligence. It doesn't require any discipline whatsoever. It doesn't require walking circumspectly. It's just waking up and falling out of bed and just doing whatever you want. But the Lord was with him because he was with God. And notice what God did. He prospered him. Wherever he went, God wants to prosper you, not to give you more money. I mean, it may, it may include that. You may be financially blessed, but you know what he wants to give you more than the money? He wants to give you a soul, a life that's worth living. He wants to give you a life that is, has no regrets. He wants to, uh, you to live a life where you've surrendered it to him and you've experienced the blessing. See, so many people are afraid of surrendering to God. Because they think that God's going to do something with them that he doesn't like, that they don't like. And you know what? That couldn't be further from the truth. If you think that God is going to do that, then start praying and say, Lord, I want you to have all of me and do whatever my life with you want. And I can tell you that if you really mean that, it's his job to change your heart. And then pretty soon... You're no longer going to be dragged along like a dog who doesn't want to go for a walk and, you, and the dog's doing this and the owner's trying to, you know, you know, and they're dragging the dog. It's not going to be like that. You're going to be like walking right next to him going, Lord, what's next? What's next? And I am having such a ball. I am. Me personally, I've never had so much joy and fun in my life. And I get to do this. And I get to talk and pray with people. Pinch me. Honestly, I'm not the perfect pastor by any means, but I, I strive to be a good pastor. I strive to be a good husband and a good, um, a good father for my daughter. But where, wherever he went, God prospered him. And he rebelled. Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria, and, and he did not serve him. Now, that's not a bad thing, because this king, so uh, all the, a couple kings before him, they became vassals to Assyria. So in other words, as long as Judah kept paying Shalmaneser money every, you know, every, every month, send the check, you know, have the direct debit out of his checking account, as long as that was going well, everybody was happy. Oh, but don't you miss a payment. Going to shut off your electricity. Have you had that happen? Yes, there's a certain company, we, you know, we've been, never mind. 
three days late on your bill and they're already calling you. We're going to shut off your lights. I mean, really? For 20, you know, how, how many years have we been paying that on time and now? Where's the love? Where's the family? You know, uh, where's the family feeling about this whole thing? It's more like uh, whatever. Anyway, so the Lord was with him. So prior to this, Shalmaneser of Assyria forced even Hosea, Hosea, excuse me, the, the king of Israel, the last king of Israel, he caused him to pay tribute to him. It, you can write this in the margin off of verse 7, but it's 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 3 and 4. And let me just read this to you. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, he came up against him, speaking of Hosea, and Hosea became his vassal, and he paid him tribute money. It's sort of like, you know, friendship money. If you want me to protect you and stay out and not bully you, then, you know, give me your lunch money, kid. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, who was, how'd you like to have a name like So? Hey, So, so what? So, so what? So, so what? That was his name, So, king of Egypt. And he brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, and he, as he had done year by year, therefore the king of Assyria shut him up, put him in prison and bound him up because he wasn't paying up. So notice in verse 8 as we go on here that Hezekiah subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In other words, he, he, just, he subdued the Philistines. Now I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles. We're going to read literally through two chapters tonight. And I want to do that for a reason. It's, it's going to be a little tedious, but I think if we read through it, you'll understand why. As we take a pause, First uh, Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to start there. And we're just going to read chapters 29 and 30. And I'm, the reason I'm doing that is because up to this point, every single king has been pretty much a disappointment. All the kings in the northern tribes, disappointments. Most of them in the southern two tribes, disappointments. Now we've got a breath of fresh air. And Israel and Judah, Jerusalem, they are longing whether they know it or not, they're missing out on so much. And finally, someone comes along and says, hey, let's go back to the beginning again. Let's start over. Let's erase the chalkboard and start again. And this is exactly what happens. Notice in Second Chronicles 29, we're going to read through uh, these two chapters. Because he revamps their worship, which hadn't been happening for a long time. He revamps the priesthood. He revamps everything. And God is very well pleased with him. Notice in 2 Chronicles 29 that Hezekiah, verse 1, became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years. And I'm just going to go over some verses that we're, we're already, we've already talked about. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, notice what he did. In the first month, the very first month and, uh, of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He repaired them. And then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. From our father, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They've turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs 
sacks on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule. They've put out the lamps, the menorah, and they've put and they not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So basically, the whole idea of worship was null and void. The lamps were out. Everything was cold. There's spider webs in the corners and all this junk from all these false gods that are filling up the areas that it ought not to have been. And therefore, the wrath of God fell upon Judah and Jerusalem. See, he knows Hezekiah. He knows why God has judged the northern ten tribes. And he says, we are ripe for judgment. We've had judgment already, but it's coming. Can you smell it in the wind? It's on the horizon. I can hear the, foot, the hoof prints of those horses coming for us. If we don't turn, therefore, verse 8, the wrath of God fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them over to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your own eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. Now, what captivity is he spoken of? Because he's in Judah. They haven't gone in captivity yet. Well, do you remember Ahaz, his father? There was a time in Second uh, Chronicles 28, uh, don't go there, but he, the, the king of reason, the king of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria. There's two nations, Syria and Assyria, okay? And one is north, just a little bit north and uh, east of, of, like if you're looking at a map of Israel, Here's the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea and the, the Sea of Galilee. Syria is over here, but Assyria is way over here, okay? Two different nations, two different kings. Ahaz came under judgment, and God brought the uh, reason, who was the name of the king of Syria, to come, and he destroyed a lot of their people, took them captive, so there were some captives taken from Jerusalem, even though they hadn't fallen under the captivity like the northern ten tribes did. And that happened uh, earlier in Ahaz's ministry. But let's go back to uh, verse 10, uh, starting in verse 10 now in Second Chronicles 29. Notice what it says. Notice what Hezekiah says. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and to serve, them, serve him, and that you should minister him and burn incense. And so throughout the chapter, uh, verses 12 through 14, he names these Levites by name that are going to rise up. But notice in verse 15 that they gathered their brethren. They sanctified themselves, which hadn't been done for a very long time. And they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord. Notice, to cleanse the house of the Lord, which became a mess. It was filthy, filled with every detestable thing. And then now go down to verse 18. It says, Now, then they went to the king Hezekiah and says, We've cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all of its articles, the table of the showbread with all of its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz uh, in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified those. And there they are before the altar of the Lord. Now notice what happens. Now Hezekiah restores the worship. And notice this worship service. I bring this up because this is a watershed moment for Israel, for, for Judah specifically. So King Ahaz, he rose early. He gathered the rulers of the city, went up to the house of the Lord. 
They brought seven bulls and seven rams, seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And so they killed the bulls. And the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. What are you talking about? Is this a worship service or is this a a meatpacking plant? Well, the Bible says that, that without sacrifice, there's no worship. See, the Jews, remember, they sacrificed animals instead of themselves, because God says the soul that sins shall surely die. So God allowed a, a, uh, a substitute in my place. Because of my sin, I deserve to die because God is holy. But he says, you know what? Then take the first, a lamb of the first year without blemish, the very best for me, God says. And you sacrifice that in place of you, and I will accept it. Because blood was shed The blood of an innocent was shed for the blood of the lawless. Jesus, the blood of the only innocent, was shed for the blood of all of us lawless. Isn't that good news? I love that. So, then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement. There it is, an atonement for all Israel, and the, for the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all of Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals. Notice, so now the music breaks out. Now that they've done the, the, the bloody uh, sacrifice, which is the real worship, now they're worshiping with song. So worship is not just singing with our voices. Worship requires sacrifice. Sometimes it's helping somebody else out when you don't feel like it. Sometimes, guys, it's washing the dishes instead of your wife. She does it every single night, but will you pick up a dish and rinse it and put it in the dishwasher? Sometimes it means taking your socks and your underwear off the floor and putting them in the laundry bin and even taking it downstairs for her so she doesn't have to carry this big wad of stuff. Sometimes it means taking the groceries out of the car and bringing them in. Just to name a few things, and I know each of you are getting, ooh, that hurt, ooh, that hurt, stop it, get him. Because I've had the same thing. Hmm. So, they stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus... Uh, was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites, stood, the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests and the trumpets, and then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. And so all the assembly, all the people worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him, they bowed and they worshiped. And moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. In other words, the Psalms. They sang the Psalms. And so they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near 
and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. And so the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings. And as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. And these were for the burnt offering to the Lord. And then the consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few. So that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, the brethren, their brethren helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Notice that it was set in order for the first time in hundreds of years. (laughs) Now they're actually doing this the right way. And God's going, oh, I'm so blessed. You're doing what I told you to do. You're worshiping me the way I told you to worship me. You didn't make things up. You didn't do what felt good to you. No, you just, you followed what I told you. This is, I am God, he says, and this is how I want to be worshiped. Don't deviate from it. Don't add food coloring. Don't add sparkles to the incense, you know, the pop rocks. Don't add that stuff. Just do what I tell you to do. Just be obedient. Stay in your lane. And boy, we hate that. Staying in our own lane. I want to go to that lane. I want to go over to that pasture. It looks so nice over there. Oh, but it's nice here too, but it, it must be nicer over there. It's got to be nicer. <laughs> that sheep is smiling and I'm just here. And... Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. I love this. There was a spontaneity about it that they weren't even quite ready, and God was in it. God was in it. (laughs) And check this out. Go on to verse 30. And so Hezekiah, he does this Passover, which they haven't done in so long. And the Bible spends a lot of time talking about this. That's why I'm reading it to you verbatim tonight, because this was... Something they hadn't done in a long time. Sometimes it's really good to just go back to the old paths. See, they'd gotten off and they started doing their new thing. And the church in America is off doing its new thing, whatever it is. This wind of thing of doctrine is going through the church and whatever it is, you know, but stay in our lane and stay on the old path. There's safety and there's comfort. Oh, but they're, you know, they're worshiping with all the lights and all the electric guitars and the guy sliding across on his knees doing a guitar solo. It's amazing. And you're like, is that really worship? Do you know how many churches in America, I mean, not that we have to do this because the Lamb of God was slain once and for all, but can you imagine how quickly this church or any other church would empty out if we had an altar and we took a little cute little lamb, little puffy white ears, and we sacrifice that lamb on the altar. We don't have to do that today, but you got to think that's what they did. The blood of a lamb. The blood of the lamb. It was all symbolic. God was preparing them for that day. But to do that, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Bible says. Aren't you glad that Christ died for us? But notice this Passover. This is amazing. 
And Hezekiah sent all Israel and Judah, and he also wrote letters. Notice, not only to Judah and the cities of Judah, but he goes even farther up into Israel. Many of them had been taken captive, but some have had escaped, some have hidden. And so there's still people in the northern part that haven't gotten carried away captive. And so he invites them, come on down, we're going to have a worship service. So Hezekiah sent, all, sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the pastor of the, of the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover, notice, in the second month. What was the Passover supposed to be on? The first month. So why are they doing it on the second month? It was supposed to be in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, but now they're doing it in the second month. Hmm, this is interesting, isn't it? And I love this. Watch what happens. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. Very simply, the first month has already passed. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. And so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, which is in the south, to Dan, which is always in the, is in the north of Israel, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. And notice, so the guys get out their iPhones and they're texting everybody all around the country. No, they had to, then the runners, <laughs> these guys were runners, and they went through all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the commandment of the king, saying, children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and then he will return to... And then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation, as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever and served and, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may, re, may uh, turn away from you. Because remember, they were, they were serving golden calves in Dan and another one in Bethel. He's saying, now that you guys are taken away captive, those of you who are left, come on down to the place you should have done it from the beginning. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious, notice, and merciful, and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the runners passed from city to city through country, through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and they mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, from the tribe of Asher, some from Manasseh, some from Zebulun, they humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem, which is a really good idea. Also the hand of, the, of, the, of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the commandment of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. These were the false altars, okay? 
And they took away all the incense altars, which were for pagan purposes, and they cast them into the brook Kidron, which is right to the east of the Temple Mount. There's a little valley in the Temple Mount. It goes down, and there's a valley called the Kidron. And there used to be a brook that went through there. And then on the other side of it is the Mount of Olives. And then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day, notice, of the second month. And God allowed this. We, we don't have time to go there, but he allowed that to occur under certain circumstances, for certain reasons. And here, because they wanted to do a really great thing, they wanted to consecrate themselves. God wasn't going to go, you're going to have to wait till next year. Now is not the right time, according to the law. Sorry, you got to wait. No, he's like, I don't care if it's a third month. You guys, your heart is on fire for me. Let's do this thing. <laughs> Let's do it now. And I love that. And so they stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, and the priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord because of their haste, right? So for a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written, but Hezekiah prayed for them. <laughs> you might want to underline that. So they, they, they were doing some things out of order, but their heart was right, and God saw the heart behind it all. And they're like, you know, we just, did the, we just started this thing, and we're doing it kind of quickly. We're ready to go. And so what is, And they knew they weren't doing the right thing, but they, they didn't have you know, the luxury of time to consecrate themselves and go through their rituals. So what does it say? But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good... Lord, provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And notice this, underline this, and the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So much for legalism. <laughs> you know, there, there are people in the church, so well, God couldn't do that. You know, you got to do it this way, otherwise God's not going to be blessed. You're not going to get rewarded. I don't want a fellowship with you. God's going, relax. Look at the heart. The heart is what I'm concerned about. And notice, they didn't have time. God knew that. He's the author of time. And yet he saw this outbreak. And I pray that it happens in our country or the church. We forget about everything else. And we're like, God, you've got to save us. And I don't mean save us in, in an eternal way. For those of you who are born again, you're saved. But I mean, Lord, save us from what's happening. Help us. We're in a mess. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. I wish I was there, honestly. One of the greatest memories I have, and, and I know I'm taking a little more time here, and we're going to end here pretty shortly because I don't want to keep you too late, but one of the sweetest memories I have of being in Israel is I remember one time we were in the old city of Jerusalem, and um, it was a beautiful day, and we heard this ruckus, and we heard this sound, and there was just this sound of joy and, and dancing, and, and it was coming toward us. And, and you're, you know, sometimes you can be in one place, and you turn a corner, and then there's this little alleyway, and here was this 
huge group of people celebrating the bar mitzvah of this 13-year-old young boy, and they had him up on his shoulders, and they're celebrating, and they're dancing, and they're singing, and I, I wept. I was like, man, what, what a, look at that. They were so excited. They were genuinely celebrating, happy for this young man. Now he's a son of the law, the bar mitzvah. And it was such a cultural big deal to them. And they were singing. And no doubt, after they had danced and they sang for hours, they went and they had a big feast and everybody ate well. And there was dancing and singing. And I thought to myself, man, that is just something that is just... I wanted to ask, hey, can I pay $20 or whatever and join you guys? I got it on video. I was so enamored, I got it on video. And you could hear them and they're just like... Yeah, you know, and they're jumping around, and I was just like floored. Just the joy. It was incredible. And to think that this, what we're reading now, joy and excitement. And the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. (laughs) The law only told them to do it seven days. They're having such a great time in the presence of God. They're saying, let's do it for another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and 7,000 sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and 10,000 sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, all the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from, from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in the land. And so there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, underline this, verse 26, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. It was a huge, big deal. I love that. I wish I could be there. wish I was there. Then the priests and the Levites arose and they blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. I love that. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that inspiring? I'm like, Lord, make our worship like that. You know, don't be afraid to stand. And, you know, sometimes we direct you, and I've done it myself, and Sarah does too. We direct you to stand in the beginning, perhaps, or sit down. But you know what? Forget about us. If you want to stand, you stand. And I would encourage you to sing. Don't worry about your voice. Don't worry about what you look like. I mean, really, this is the place where we ought to come and not worry about what we look like. Just come and worship God. And get excited about him again. I think we're a little tame. I want to encourage you. Don't worry. If it gets really weird, we'll, we'll talk about it. But you know what? I don't think we have to really worry about that with, this group, with, with our group. Most churches, most Calvaries, let's breathe again. Let's live again. Let's liven up a little bit. And again, I'm not promoting weirdness. But I am saying, you know what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying let's loosen up a little bit and enjoy the Lord and not be so, look at the, you know, I, might even, I might sing, or maybe I won't sing at all. Now, you can worship without singing. I get it. I get it. However, when we're singing, let's sing. I've been in a room with 1,200 men, 1,200 pastors at a pastor's conference, 1,200 men who love Christ with all of their heart. 
and I've heard them sing, and the roof is about ready to cave in because every one of those guys are giving it everything that's in their gut, and the sound can be heard across the Chesapeake. They can hear it across the area where we used to be. The men singing, not like, I love you, Lord, and I live my... I love... I mean, they're really just belting it out, and it's serious, and it's... that Who cares? doesn't matter how good your voice is. If, you, if you're tone deaf, praise God. Sing with all of your heart, and don't worry. Can, can, you know, I want to challenge you in that. Let's break out of our doldrums. Let's break out of this crust that has overcome us. And I'm not talking about weirdness. Don't worry about being weird. If we're swing, you know, there, there's an order in worship, but if there's joy, we've got to have joy again. And it's not the worship leader's fault. Because I've led the worship, and, 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 and you know, the same is true. Whoever's leading worship, it's not their fault. Let's get on our s- clap. Can we clap again? On two and four. Never clap on one and three, okay? As a musician, you clap on one and three, you're messing everything up with a start over. But always clap on two and four. One, two, three. I love you, Lord, right? Whatever it is. But clap and express it in your face. Think of the words. Sorry, I'm going on and on about this, but just let's loosen up and not worry. Let's not worry. We're going to have to stop there. Why don't we stand together and let's pray together. But be encouraged. I love this chapter because it's just something that Israel has needed. And God has chosen a man like Hezekiah at the right moment in their history to be a shining bright light for them and to kick out all the cobwebs and to lift the song of praise up higher and to lift it and and to worship God because he's worthy of of being worshipped. He's cleaning the house. And I love this. See, we need that in America. America is like where Judah was before Hezekiah came along. We're barely, our, 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 our EKG or whatever is starting to flatline. There's just this little, little line, and every now and then there's this little thing, you know, and it's, it's just slowly flatlining and slowly smoothing out, almost dead. And then God goes, <sighs> he breathes new life. May that happen all over our country, all over the world, the true church of God, worshiping Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great King of all creation, the one who has forgiven you of all your sin, the God who is going to usher you into the kingdom and into heaven, and you'll never see death or hell. You'll never see eternal death or hell. You'll never see it if you're a believer. Do you understand that? That, to me, makes me want to dance. These feet want to move when I think of how exciting that is, right? I love that. So I would encourage you to read these chapters again, especially these uh, Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles, excuse me, twenty-nine and thirty, and let it let it do something to you, as it's doing in me. I just love the Lord, and I want Him to do whatever He wants. And I don't want to hold him back. I don't want to keep him from doing all that he wants. 
Lord, we thank you for tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would reveal your great love to them, so much so, God, that they, they just couldn't contain it. They couldn't stand it anymore just to be loved by you, God. And just our times in your word, Lord, may it be fresh and new. And Lord, when it feels stale, would you breathe new life into us and would you help us, Lord, just to, to, to read like we've never read before, to pray like we've never prayed before, to worship like we've never worshiped. Lord, change us. Change me, God. Break me out of my old crust and, 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 uh, and, and breathe new life into all of us as you're breathing new life into Judah in this chapter. Lord, may we glorify you today and tomorrow and all the next week and all the next month and just keep pouring out your spirit, Lord, upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.